Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Brooklands. I'm Steve Clark, and I have the honour and pleasure of organising these events. Brilliant to see so many of you this evening. I'm not even going to start to talk about the temperature in here, but there is plenty of water at the back if you need it. Um, normally, I talk for about 20 minutes, as you know, before these talks, but I'm going to keep it to two seconds. Um, so we're here for the perfect evening, perfect audience, and the perfect car. Will you please welcome John Barnard and Nick Skeens. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've brought you out here in this heat because you're going to be listening to Formula One's own devil, the uh, prince of darkness of Formula One, so we thought the temperature would be suitable. Uh, and we're going to start, as all good Formula One presentations start, with a terrible accident. And John, I want you to comment on, as soon as it's run, why this was so important. Sixth is PK, seventh is John Watson, and out of the point at the moment is Carlos Reutemann. And there he is, storming along at the back, behind John Watson, who loses it? That's John Watson, and a very nasty one indeed, torn the whole of the back off the car. Okay, well, I'm going to take that back to the beginning in a minute so you can talk through it again, but uh, this was 1981. It was yeah, Monza. Monza yeah. And he was, uh, he was coming through, uh, John Watson was driving the MP4, the first carbon fibre car, yeah. through the Lesmo turns. He was on second Lesmo. Can yeah. you remember what happened then? Uh, watching it happen, and of course it's a, it's a terrifying accident, and um, your first thought is, my God, you know, what, what's happened? Um, is the driver okay? And then John Watson steps out and walks away. And really what that accident proved to be was the rubber stamp on carbon monocoques. After that accident, all the talk that had been going around, oh, it's going to explode in a cloud of black dust, um, mechanics will drop spanners on it and break the skin, and you know all these kind of comments that had been floating around. Um, would they just stopped overnight that that was like wow that's a big accident and you know the actual cell the monocoque was almost undamaged the engine got ripped off the back which was a good thing um, interestingly enough one thing I suppose it's worth saying now because um, I know John Watson I've talked to John about it a number of times and he, he got out and looked and couldn't believe it. But apparently it dragged the whole gear shift run straight out the back of the car. Yeah, it just passed his hip. Just passed, missed everything, and yes. just, just plucked it neatly out the back, um, which that could have done a lot of damage. But, uh, but what was interesting about that, as you've indicated, was that the whole paddock thought the carbon fibre was not the way to go. Apart from being colossally expensive and very difficult, there had been a long history of people trying to use carbon fibre carbon fiber, and never quite doing it correctly. Uh, and, and what was it, uh, we will be coming back to McLaren later on, but what was it uh, that allowed you or made you decide 
that carbon fibre, which was probably your biggest innovation, your biggest corporation, uh, contribution to motorsport, what was it made you decide to go down such a difficult and expensive route? I joined um, Ron at Project 4 at the end of, near the end of 79, and I just finished the, just done the Chaparral 2K, which was the first proper ground effect car at Indianapolis. And so I was, after talking to Ron and, and we made a deal um, between us, I realized I had a year, over a year, to create a Formula One car. In fact, it was part of your deal with him that you do what you want to do. The deal was very simple. I define technically what I want, which way I'm going, and he goes and finds the money. And he did. And he did. And there's well, probably he did up to a point. <laughs> yes. As was often the case in those days, yes. Um, I mean, we're going to return to Carbon Fiber and Formula One. I'm going to play this again uh, just because, at least I hope, am I pointing this in the right way? There we go. Uh, just simply to uh, demonstrate its severity and just make a comment afterwards on. Sixth is PK, seventh is. And out of the points at the moment is Carlos Reutemann. There he is, storming along at the back behind John Watson. Who loses it? That's John Watson. And a very nasty one indeed. Torn the whole of the back of the car. Now you can just see, if I press it the thing up here, John is about to emerge from the car there. Uh, and I remember him saying, uh, uh, as he reiterated when we did a talk on this recently, uh, that he... The impact, he didn't think it was such a big shunt. Mm. Uh, and he, as he looked over his shoulder, he could see this engine, uh, a whole back of the car coming by. And he thought, oh no, I've caused a major pileup. Mm. And then he realized, that's my engine. <laughs> and he was absolutely <laughs> shocked to discover yeah. it. And the reason yeah. why that is significant, of course, is that it was the monocoque and the strength of the monocoque yes. that made him realize, and made him feel that it wasn't so serious. That's right. I mean, that, that really um, gave him the confidence to get in another carbon monocoque. And as I said, you know, everybody then started to look at it as being, well, maybe we've got to go this way. Um, it was interesting that um, uh, he, <laughs> I mean, it was his mistake. I mean, that was, that was the point. And I think on his, he walked back to the pits. And on his walk back to the pits, he said to me one time, he said, I was trying to think what to say, you know, because I was like, I made a real cock up. <laughs> and it ended up like that. Yeah, he, he felt said. very embarrassed because so, he, he'd run the wheels off the, yeah. uh, off the edge onto Ran the grass. Ran over the curb, yeah. yeah. Okay, we're now going back in time, quite a long way. Uh, uh, so this is your first experience of motorsport. Yeah. Uh, how old were you? I guess I was, I don't know, I, I was about five, I suppose, I mean, uh, something like that. Um, I mean, I used the word crucible earlier, and I mean it here, because this is how you became the designer you were, not because you designed well, I didn't design that car. one, no, I didn't design that car, no. <laughs> no, fair point. But uh, you were living uh, in a world which you referred to as a three-legged table, which probably contributed a, a vast amount to the person you can you became. Tell us a bit about your early childhood. Um, I was an only child, um, you probably tell that, um, <laughs> and uh, we, my mum and dad were both um, 
fairly hands-on people. I mean, they were both in engineering. My mother had been in engineering during the war because, you know, lots of women were um, uh, brought in to do jobs then. And but she was a senior engineer. Well, she was actually running a grinding shop at Glacier Metal Company with about 10 blokes in it. So, you know, she was um, pretty handy. Um, my dad was there in the same company. Um, he was in reserved occupation. I think he was making bearings for submarine drive shafts or something like that. I don't know, some, some, some huge thing. Um, and, um, and we just, there, there was this, uh, you know, the, the fact that we were hands-on and we, could, we, we attempted pretty much anything, anything we felt we needed to have, you know, or what we wanted to build, we would build. So uh, from a young age, you were involved in uh, making cars or, or repairing cars with your dad, and mm. you had workshops in this uh, house that you had uh, in North Wembley, where you yeah. grew up. Of course, you, had, you built a go-kart, which had suspension, naturally, was the fastest on East Lane. Well, it was a soapbox, actually, but yeah. A soapbox, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, I, um, and yeah. Uh, you then went on to teach yourself to weld, teach yourself to spray paint, uh, and teach yourself to rebuild cars. Yeah. And I'm going to skip enormous amount here, but all this detail, of course, is in the book, and take you to this particular beauty. Yeah. And what is this? Um, well, that's DB24 that my dad bought me when I was 19, um, because... Um, <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> but, um, uh, the reason was, I, you know, I was always looking for, for some special or other, and in those days, um, the, there were lots of specials around, lots of kit cars, lots of cars that were home people would build at home. I remember going to see this one somewhere and, and um, the guy said, he said, I've done 95 in it. He said, it'll do 95. And I came away and I said, what do you think, Dad? He said, you think I'm going to buy you something that that bloke's built and it does 95 mile an hour? He said, you've got to be joking. <laughs> so that led, one thing and another, it led to getting the DB24. The interesting thing with that is it was registered. It's, that's unfinished there. It's, it's before I resprayed it. But um, its registration was PCD 480, and it, was, it cost 480 quid. I remember that. Which is a lot of money in those days. Well, it's a reasonable amount. But, um, yeah. but, and, but you did not come from wealthy parents. You came no. from a, a, no. a pretty normal background, yeah. a, a sort of yeah. average sort of background. Yeah. But it was because your parents were, uh, A, devoted to engineering, and... Yeah seemed to yeah. want to get you a car that they felt was safe and yeah. reliable. Well, and right. stylish, That's obviously. right. I mean, you know, my, I suppose my father was a, was a bit of a car. He wasn't a car nut. I mean, he was interested in cars. Um, and this turned up damaged, didn't it, when you first Well, no, it? I had it. I, we bought it. And um, I remember um, coming along the A40 one night, about six weeks after, we, after I had it, coming up the A40, and um, suddenly there was an almighty bang. Uh, all the front end of the car was enveloped in smoke and then it, we just carried on through the smoke the smoke cleared and it, we just kept going and i thought hmm i better stop and have a look something's happened <laughs> so i pulled in i opened the bonnet which on those was the whole front end of the car you could you could see everything and i looked in and i'm looking through the block at the road and um I thought, ah, that's quite serious. But the engine was still running. <laughs> but it was still running. The piston had stuck at the top of the bore and the, the conrod had completely disintegrated. And so it was running on five cylinders. And, uh, but I, I didn't take it home on that. I, I left it where it was. <laughs> <laughs> so then it meant, uh, what did I do with it? I remember going up to Aston's um, 
and inquiring about a new block, which um, I think the block alone was about 250 quid at the time, plus all the other bits and pieces. And I thought, hmm, don't think that's <laughs> that's going that's to work. The numbers don't work. So then I started looking around. Um, and I had been, I'd kind of got involved a little bit with some of the guys up at Checkered Flag on the Edgware Road, Checkered Flag Garage. Um, some of the guys did a bit of racing up there and I remember talking to one of them and he said, well, I know this guy that's got a Chevy V8 for sale um, and I know a bloke that's got a, a Borg Warner four-speed gearbox. So, um, hmm, I thought, well, maybe that's the answer. So, so that's you put what a I ended Chevy up doing. V8 into this car? So I put a Chevy V8 and gearbox, I had to build all the gear change mechanism myself and build all the exhaust pipe system to go in. And uh, You also resprayed it, but there was one other thing that was a seminal moment for you. And it, uh, as I remember it, it came to the point at which you thought the upholstery is a bit worn, you wanted to replace it. Very expensive, very uh, difficult thing to do. Uh, so you asked your mother, and what did she say? I said to mother, I said, uh, you know, that, that some, it's a bit worn, some of this leather. Um, which these days would have probably <laughs> merited it as a, <laughs> yes. you know. Um, and I said, you know, what do you think? Can we, can we re recover it? She said, hmm, yeah, I don't see why not, you know, so let's have a go. So she, uh, she had hauled out a Singer sewing machine, which is a treadle machine, and we motorized it, um, put an electric motor on it. She reground the, the foot on the machine so that she could sew all the leather piping and so on. And we went down the road and bought a half a cow skin of gray and a half a cow skin of black leather um, and brought it back. And she took the seats and everything apart um, for patterns, um, used all that with them, recut the new leather, sewed it all up, fed all the wadding and everything down the flutes, and I mean, just re upholstered it as you do. Well, as you would, no, as you do, it has to be said, because most people don't. But uh, I, what for me is remarkable about that is the impact it had on you, because you felt that now there's kind of nothing you can't do. This, this, it looks like such highly skillful mm. work. It is such highly skillful work, but you were able to replicate it or with with this three-legged table, the three. Yeah, the I mean, I don't, you know, there was there was. Um, I would say my mother was more of the entrepreneur than my father. My father was more of the rock, my mother was more the entrepreneur. And, and she basically, I suppose from her I got the fact that, well actually, there's nothing you can't do if you really want to do it. If you really think you want to do it, do it. Um, and, and that's kind of where that came from, I suppose, in me. Um, yes. And it really shaped the way that you went on to design cars, didn't you? If there was a problem, it must be fixed. It yes, be I mean, I mean, you know, if there's a problem, you must be able to understand it, get to grips with it, and consequently fix it. Right, okay, we're going to move on from here, and we're going straight into the racing world. We're going to leave out the whole college situation yeah. and, uh, and the cars that you built and did at that time. Yeah. And we come to Lola. And uh, what car is this, John? That's the T250, it's the Super V car. That, it's your um, first racing car. That was my first racing car design, yes. And you were asked to do it within, what, eight months of being there? That's right. I mean, I, after leaving college about... You could pull was, the mic in front of sorry, you. Sorry. After leaving college, about when I was about 23, I actually was working for, for Hoover's at Perryvale, and um, 
I just decided that I wasn't going to do that for the rest of my life, so I started writing around. One of the places I wrote to was Lola Cars, who were at Slough at that time. And I got a reply from Eric and went down, had a chat with Eric, sat in his office for an hour or two talking about it, and he said, start in the drawing office next week. And that's what I did. And then I started off drawing um, some bits and pieces for actually the Can-Am car they were making at the time, which was Peter Revson's, um, I think it was a T220 or something, Peter Revson's Can-Am car. Um, and then one day, Eric, about, after about nine months, I think, I'd been there, Eric came in and he said, um, how would you like to design a car? And I said, what do you mean, Eric? He said, well, VW have come up with a new formula they want to introduce. And, you know, uh, if, you, if you're willing to have a go at it, have a go, you know, design it. There's a clean sheet of paper, start sort of thing. It was a big um, act of faith on his part to give mm. you your own motor uh, uh, racing so. car to yeah. start with. And it was from this car that you learned another valuable lesson. Uh, as I understand it, just to, to start the story off, uh, the original engine they were going to put in there was, was, a, was a standard VW engine, if yes, you like. Yes, yes. Uh, and then they decided that a Porsche engine was going to go in? What was, go what was going to go into it after that? Well, it was a VW engine. Yeah, so, um, so I started on it, started doing all the layouts and drawing up the tube frame chassis. And after about two weeks, I think it was, Eric came along and he said, hmm, he said, VW want to change the engine. And I thought, oh my God, I've got this far down the road. Um, so they wheeled in this new engine, which sat on a box in the drawing office in, uh, at Lola's. And um, I'm walking round and round this thing, trying to figure out what I have to change or how little I have to change and it, it was a completely different engine basically, all the mounting and everything was different. And it was about eight o'clock at night and Eric came in and, and he said, what's up lad? He said, I said, well Eric, I don't know what to do. I said, I'll have to start again. Uh, you know, this is terrible. It's, it's completely different. Um, he said, oh, he said, don't worry about it. He said, just go home. He said, you'll get the answer in a couple of days. <laughs> and that stuck with me forever. And, and there have been many occasions when I thought to myself, I don't know how to get out of the hole we're in here or how, how I get around this problem. And I just give it a bit more time and, yeah. and you know, just keep mulling it over and give it more time. And inevitably you come up, you either come up with a compromise in a couple of days or you come up with a whole new idea to get around the problem. Okay, well, of course, it was at uh, Lola that you met uh, Patrick Head, now Sir Patrick Head, who became your uh, best man, uh, and you were soon to be married, but not yet, uh, because you uh, came to McLaren, uh, and this is the M23, to which you contributed quite a lot that hasn't been acknowledged, uh, partly because, of course, this was a cop-up car, uh, and, uh, it was and you were... Uh, you came in as reasonably junior, but you quickly became his sort of right-hand man. Uh, but tell me just a little bit about the contributions to the car, and I'll point first to the side pods and ask about those before we go um, to the wing. I, Lola's um, were not into Formula One at the time I was there, and so I wanted to move up, I wanted to get into Formula One. Um, it, through the, I, guess I, I, I guess I was known through the grapevine because an offer came to me sort of more or less through the grapevine 
and I went down to see Gordon and ended up going to McLaren. When I got there, the monocoque was, um, I think the front bulkhead had been drawn, which was a tube frame bulkhead, but not much else. Gordon had, had laid out the shape he was looking for. Um, and I remember the first thing with the side pods where Gordon uh, wanted to continue the, the outer skin of the monocoque all the way out, right down to where you see the number eight, and all, all the way round as one, as, a, as part of the monocoque, which on initial uh, viewing we thought was a bit risky because, you know, you, you smash it in, in, have a big accident at the race, and how are you going to repair that lot? Um, but anyway, that's, that was decided the, the way to go. But then we had to figure out how we we're going to make it. So um, I ended up, I remember discussing it with Don Beresford, who was um, at, um, at Colnbrook then. Um, was he known as Mother, Don Beresford? He was known as Mother, yes. yes. Um, and there, in fact, I think there's some guys here tonight that probably worked with him at the time. Um, I don't know, Tex, when, when were you there? Were you there then? Yeah. <laughs> so I've got to be careful what I'd say. I just remember <laughs> it's got to be accurate. Wonderful stories of of him coated in uh, oh yeah in dust yeah. and yeah. Uh, mother mother got stuck into everything, and um, we ended up anyway. I drew up a fiberglass insert that all the part you see orange, um, yellow, whatever you call it, um, inside the the, the duct was molded in fiberglass yeah, yeah. and glued in and in place. And then the gap between the outer skin and that fiberglass was injected with a rigid setting foam. Um, and, um, and it actually proved to be quite, you know, quite a rigid, quite a strong structure. Um, but I then moved, I think I, I think I actually drew that air box as well, um, which was made up at specialized moldings. Oh, sorry oh. about that. We're going and, back. Uh, we are going yeah, back. I've got, yeah, I can. <laughs> um, Sorry, carry on. Yeah, that was made specialized. These were these two slots. Oh, that, well, that's, slots. that's just for, I think that was cooling the electronic box up, um, behind his right. head, which I think was on the chassis then. But there you can see um, a single post mounted wing, which that one is the first version I drew, which was interesting because we, decided, I think it was myself, more or less, wanted to find a wind tunnel that we could run some of this stuff in. And we ended up um, finding a, a wind tunnel on the, based on the Isle of Wight that was used by British Hovercraft. And we made up um, a plywood sort of replica chassis. Um, I think we had the airbox and everything as well. And we had to mount it upside down on the roof of the tunnel. Um, because it was an air aircraft tunnel, all the balance was made to measure um, uplift, if you like. So we had to turn it all upside down. And then we mounted the wing and, and the wing post on the balance. Um, what it showed was that that wing post led to a fluctuating stall. Um, you get this stall that would suddenly break away from the leading edge of the wing post and destroy about a third of the of the of the wingspan in terms of smooth flow and which was obviously not good um, and I remember talking to some of the guys that operated the tunnel who worked on the DC 10 
Mm. Um, and they said, oh, they had a similar problem with a DC-10 tailplane. And so I, I chatted to them and I came back and that's when completely changed the single post wing, uh, wing mount and had, a, had the post mounted in the middle of the main plane, which then worked okay, worked fine to got rid of that fluctuating stall. But, but this, was, this was probably, this uh, single post wing was probably uh, your first spectacular, noticeable innovation. I mean, it's not that it was the first single post wing, but the other ones before it had lots of sort of gubbins around it. Well, this was elegant um, and smooth, it was the first, a bit of your signature. Yeah, element. I think it was the first, what shall we say, integrated single post. I mean, and most, it was of the wing, most of the wing mountings then were some kind of tube frame yeah. arrangement. Um, the M19, the car before, had this kind of fairly messy tube frame arrangement. Um, so that was the reason for doing the single post mounting was to get rid of all that. Yes, but it was a sort of trademark moment, wasn't it, in a, in a sense? It was a bit uh, of it was. Elegance. I think it was the first one. I think it was yeah. the first single post mounting like that, yes. Okay, so why, uh, uh, just to, before we get to this picture, sadly I think your mother has died by now and you have got married to Rosemary. Yes. Uh, all happened pretty quickly. So uh, yes. um, Patrick Head was your best man. You got yes. married in Belfast. And instead of a honeymoon, you uh, went off to America to work for Bell's Pal Nanny Jones. Why are you looking so alarmed? Um, <laughs> that's, I believe it was the Milwaukee 200. And I mean, Huey's here somewhere. Um, that's the Milwaukee 200, wasn't it, Huey? in the fairground or something. And for some reason, I got volunteered to do the pit board. Um, Huey was throwing the numbers at me, um, lap times and second. But the lap time there was something just over 30 seconds, if I remember rightly, wasn't it? 35 seconds, something like that? 25. 25, yeah. <laughs> so, and that, our pit position, just, just off to the right, is one of the turns. I can't remember the exact shape of the track, but it was a typical USAC tr track at the time. It only had about three corners in it. Um, and that there is right off the exit of the turn. So they're coming out of that turn at, I don't know, 150 miles an hour, 160 miles an hour. And as you can see, there's a, there's a retaining wall for protection of the participants. Um, <laughs> it's about six inches high. Um, and, and I don't know, I, I guess I volunteered to do the pit board or something, did I? I don't know, but um, I, there was a lot of chuckling going on in the pits anyway. <laughs> and, uh, and I was bobbing up and down like a jack-in-the-box, because if you try and write all this stuff and put lap times on the board every 25 seconds, it got quite, uh, quite busy. But um, it certainly got you involved in the racing, I say that. And Vels Parnelli Jones was a, almost a playground for you. I'm not suggesting you didn't work hard, but it was, it, it could be argued it was the time you were at your happiest. Uh, you had a, a, a pretty free hand and you started to create uh, major step forwards, uh, steps forward. Uh, you got involved in the uh, turbocharging of the Cosworth engine. Uh, and of course you created the transverse gearbox. And indeed this whole British revolution led to serious problems in IndyCar. Could you briefly sum up some of the, those things? When I got there, they, uh, the VPJ had decided to strap a turbocharger onto the Cosworth um, V8, which 
actually was derided constantly by Keith Duckworth, who said they were mad, it would never work, etc., etc. But they had their own engine shop there, it only had about three people in it, if I remember rightly, and they had their own dyno. And they were doing this thing, and when I arrived, um, they had, I think, they'd taken the Formula One car, VPJ4, which Maurice Philippe had designed, and pretty much just stuck this turbocharged Cosworth in there. Um, I don't know that anything else much was done, so all the suspension, spring rates, everything were really soft, much too soft for Indy. So I sort of came in and immediately started to work on the car to make it more of, a, of, a, of, a, of an Indianapolis-type car, um, and then got more involved in the engine side, um, learnt lots of stuff by getting involved in the engine side. Um, we didn't get any help from Cosworth, apart from they kept selling us cylinder heads and pistons. That enormous um, cost, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we ended up, I remember drawing up all sorts of, I think I drew up pistons, conrods, um, oil pump assemblies and so on. I ended up doing a um, fuel injection system, which we never raced, although it went on the dyno, um, with a four-shuttle Lucas system. Um, and I discovered things like, um, like flow benches that nobody knew they'd got. I mean, I remember, I don't know if Huey remembers it, but I put exhaust pipes on there and discovered, you know, problems with exhaust pipes that, and all sorts of stuff. And I was just, it was a bit of a toy shop, really. Um, but on top of that, of course, I'm, I'm drawing up components, bits and pieces all the time. Um, I changed the chassis to make it <coughs> more, um, more Indi Indianapolis friendly by, by, by reinforcing it, basically redrew the chassis, um, double skinned all the front bulkhead which was only skinned on the inside and I think, uh, I think from that respect A made it a lot stiffer and B made it a lot safer um, because um, later on after I think it was about 1977 and I'd done the transverse gearbox version um, with all new bodywork, and we called it the 6C, and I think Al was testing at Indianapolis and ran over uh, a turbine wheel that had come out of a, well, I think it was actually Janet Guthrie's it was, yes. turbine wheel, and had a huge accident, but fortunately just, again, walked away, so, you know, the, the, all the mods had done to the chassis were, well, they paid off in that one accident. I mean, there is so much to say for your time at uh, VPJ, mm. but we haven't really got the time here to do it. Um, but I'm going to go on to what I think you consider to be uh, your most beautiful car. And this is the Chaparral 2K, also yeah. known as the Yellow Submarine. Perhaps it's something to do with looking like it was the upper works of a submarine because the ground effect was so dramatic. And this too revolutionized uh, motorsport in America and, and continues to do so. Um, in IndyCar? Yeah, by about 1978, Vales Bonelli Jones had more or less stopped racing. I think the sponsorship had dried up for one reason or another. And um, the chief mechanic, Huey Absalom, and Al Unser, the driver, had departed and gone to Jim Hall's in Texas, where Jim was running a couple of Lolas in, in, in USAC events. And I remember Huey, I think, phoned me up one time and said, Jim's looking for somebody to do him a car. Uh, and then I think Al phoned me and, and pretty much said, you know, JB, you've got to come out and talk to this guy. 
So I flew out to Midland and talked to Hall and told him what I had in mind. And remember, Lotus had started the ground effect revolution with the 78. I hadn't seen the 79 at that time, so I, I had nothing. The, the, the fact that there are many things on this which are similar to the 79 are only because um, I happened think of going that way as, as well as Lotus. So I didn't copy the 79, which has been said before. Um, but the principle of ground effect was established with the Lotus 78. And again, um, you know, I, sp I spoke to Jim, told him what I was planning, and I said, but I have to go back to, to uh, the UK to do it because I know, I know where I can get all this stuff made. I, you know, I've got there were lots more small companies in the UK then that did and of course Jim manufacturing Hall, Jim Hall the head of Chaparral had a track record in innovation yes. in types of ground effect like the sucker car and yeah, things absolutely. like that so he yeah. was looking for someone who could help him make another breakthrough in that area was yes that I, mean, he, I mean the conversation really didn't 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 uh, focus on what the car was going to look like. I mean, it, you know, we didn't sit down and say, I'm going to do a ground effect car and it's going to look like this and I'm sketching it out. It was nothing like that at all. It was more about, you know, how much do you want, um, you know, how are we going to operate and, and so on. And, and to be fair, I mean, we talked, I came back to UK, I left my wife in California to sell the house we bought. Um, I came back to UK to my father's house in North Wembley and um, where I'd grown up, set up something called Chaparral Cars UK, registered that as a UK company, and set my drawing board up in the front room of my dad's house and, um, and started penciling. And to be fair to Jim, you know, I would send him a kind of a, 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 a invoice, if you like, or requirement every month for money and the money would come over, and it was all done on a handshake. I mean, there was no written contract. So you've designed this in your childhood home, in the front yeah. room of your childhood home. Yeah. Uh, uh, you're working with people you've worked with before, who you've got to know through both uh, your time at McLaren and also your time in California, uh, working for VPJ. Uh, um, Bob Sparshot, I think, is involved. Yeah, in but I knew stage. Bob Sparshot had a fabrication company in Luton, and I and I, yeah. and I knew he his company could make all the fabrication and parts. I just remember, um, uh, I just can't. I'm just trying to remember the actual name of the guy, uh, but uh, uh, somebody high up in Formula One walking into uh, Chaparral, uh, sorry, walking into Bob Sparshot's workshop and yeah. seeing the uprights that you'd made for No, I think car. what you're referring to is, um, at the time, Peter Reinhardt was, that's had right, set that's up right. Peter Reinhardt, the, the Reback yeah. Formula One team. And I think Bob Sparshaw was making them some suspension bits and pieces. And Peter had wandered into the storeroom at the back and started picking up uprights and things that were built for the chaparral. That's right, and he was, uh, and Bob Sparsha told him to put them down and don't tell John that you've seen that because yes. these things are supposed to be all secret. Yes. Yeah, it was meant to be all secret, but it yeah. was, he described it as an absolute work of art, the, the way in which you made these uprights. It was beautiful work. Now, again, we don't have enough time to go into the detail, but this became a very uh, a championship winning car. You didn't get the credit you should have got for it, which was part of the deal. And that you found very upsetting. What mm. happened there? 
I said one thing to Jim. I said, you know, one thing I want from this, Jim, is I want credit as the designer. Sure, sure, okay, no problem, I understand, you know, because I was. I mean, Jim's, Jim had no input on it at all. Um, and, uh, and that was the deal. And when I came back to Indianapolis in the middle of May, because I'd, I'd flown back after our first test at Ontario Speedway, I'd flown back to UK to get the second car finished and to, um, yeah, well, I happened to be having, a wife happened to be having our first child at the time as well. Um, but um, came back in the middle of May, drove up to the speedway, and there was an enormous billboard on the side of the road that said, Jim Hall, master of ground effects, blah, blah, blah. And a picture of this. A picture of, of the car. And I just tipped. Yeah. So and, you went um, into the uh, motorhome? I went in, I asked for Jim. I said, I want to see you, Jim, and I went in the motorhome, and Al was in the motorhome, and um, I said, you know, what's going on? You know, we, that was our deal, that was our agreement. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't me, it was Pennzoil, da-da-da, they insisted on doing it like this, da-da-da-da-da, and I said, well, I'm sorry, but, you know. And that really, from that point on, soured the relationship. The good news about it was that this is your arrival in most of sport. This was a car entirely created by you that was good out of the box. Uh, you made it, you designed it, it was built, it arrived on the um, uh, track in, uh, uh, where was it tested? Ontario Speedway Ontario, in California. And yeah. it worked with a minor adjustments, it worked first time, <clears throat> which of course was very rare at that time. And it defined the way in which you would go on to design. And it caught the eye of uh, the gentleman on the right, uh, who of course is Ron Dennis, uh, and in the middle of course is Teddy Mayer, and, and we all know who's on the left. Uh, and the, this was an interesting triangle, uh, partly <coughs> because it was defined quite often by some rather serious rows, uh, which we'll, we'll come to. But I want to talk to, uh, th this is a little bit later on, this is after Project 4, and mm. um, we've already talked a little bit about how uh, Ron Dennis approached you and gave you the opportunity to build the carbon fiber car. Mm. But you met resistance for building the uh, uh, carbon fiber car as Marlborough uh, um, uh, were pulling you into this forced marriage with uh, McLaren, who were ailing, who were dropping down the grid. Uh, Tyler Alexander, uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, principals there uh, had told me in an interview shortly before he died uh, that it, it had become perfectly clear that uh, Marlborough were going to pull the plug on McLaren and and, unless they teamed up with you two uh, because they did not understand ground effect unfortunately uh, as John Watson also testifies in the book but there were some other problems that you had because as these two as these this young uh, entrepreneur on the right and uh, wizard engineer on the left uh, came in with this completely new approach to design, you hit what is known as the Kiwi attitude. Can you tell me a bit about the Kiwi attitude? Um, yes. Well, first of all, having pretty much, we, we did the carbon monocoque at Project 4 before we joined forces yeah. with um, with team, the original team McLaren. And as you say, it was John Hogan at Marlborough that pulled the, 
pull the two together. Um, my first involvement there was actually, I think, going to a couple of races with the M29, um, which, uh, which both John Watson and Alan Prosper were struggling with. Um, I can't remember at that time whether they'd put Alan in the M30, but um, I know... I think he did go to the M30. But anyway, I remember working a little bit with John, and because of what we'd, we'd learned in our wind tunnel work on this car, um, I kind of understood a bit more about the ground effects and the problems. So I made some changes to the setup of the car, and immediately it was better. And I remember Watty saying how, you know, with just a few changes in the right direction, it completely changed the way the car worked. So that, that was the kind of beginning. I mean, uh, just to say that uh, there's no disrespect here to the, to the mechanics, artisan mechanics, many of them at the time. It's just that you had now come in with a completely new technology. Yeah. I mean, and you, and you, yeah. you had the philosophy that what comes out of the drawing office must be built as it was designed, which was kind of new, really. In well, it, it was new. I mean, that was my philosophy when I went in there was that I wasn't going to have anything built to go on the car that was, didn't come out of the drawing office because I felt that, um, and if there was a problem with it, it had to come back to the drawing office and it had to be fixed. Um, but without that control, then I can't see, or I couldn't see how I could take it forward. And I felt it was my responsibility to take the whole thing forward, both on the track and off the track. And so, I kind of, I guess, well, I mean, I, I stepped on a lot of toes. Teddy and Tyler were the old team McLaren, and they had a lot of their own guys there who would say, you know, who are these guys? Who are these new guys? We've done it this way for, you know, whatever, 10 years. Who are they to come and tell us not to do it like this anymore? So that, that was not an easy time. A number of the old... Team McLaren guys left, some stayed and embraced it, and, and you know we went forward. But it gave me, I wasn't just worrying about designing bits and pieces, I was trying to establish a new order. Uh, exactly, and it didn't go down well with some people, so much so that I believe it was Tyler Alexander that coined the nickname the Prince of Darkness. Yeah, Tyler was got, pretty good with the sound bites. Yeah. <laughs> which went down pretty well. And I remember yeah. when, uh, six, seven years ago when I was uh, doing research in this book and going to Silverstone and being introduced to the uh, journalists of the paddock, the first thing people, people would say to me, oh, you're doing his biography? How is the Prince of Darkness? <laughs> it's, it's still how you're re remembered there. Uh, but I think fondly, happily, uh, because yeah. those stories are... Uh, soften as time goes on. <laughs> uh, so uh, now there's an awful lot that you did. Obviously this is the space age uh, carbon fiber monocoque, uh, which really does look like something out of Star Wars, which had only come out a few years before. Uh, the sort of cross between a speeder and Darth Vader's helmet. In fact, don't suppose you had either of those in mind. But, uh, and again... Never seen Star Wars. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was the... Oh, you've never seen Star Wars? No. Okay. Oh, well, it's a bit like that. <laughs> but uh, but um, the, what made this difficult, 
and what created the clashes with these uh, old school mechanics was that this was in a sense more like tailoring than it was like <laughs> building a car. And uh, to quote you there, it was a little bit like that. Tell us just a bit briefly, why it is so hard to build them at that time, and even now, but at that time to build a carbon It, it was using carbon composites required a complete change of design approach, philosophy, whereas with a, an aluminium monocoque, you're using sheet, you're using aluminium sheet, steel sheet, of a guaranteed thickness with a finished face on both sides. So when you make a, a drawing or a layout, you know where those faces are going to be and you know what you can attach to them and, ha and, and, and that all becomes quite, quite easy to design with. With composites, um, you've actually got, or certainly with, let's, let's clarify that and say with structural composites, as with this chassis, um, which I decided to male mold it, so the mold tools went inside the monocoque, the, the carbon and the honeycomb and then more carbon was wrapped around that. Um, meant that the finished face that you, you knew dimensionally what you were working with was on the inside of the car. So suspension pickups and so on had to be designed because you, you, you have to know exactly where your suspension is going. You want to know you can't be, have approximate suspension points. So all that had to be worked out to bolt to the inside of the monocoque. Um, and any pa patches on the outside that you wanted to use for fixing, you needed to lay up sacrificial carbon and then re-machine it afterwards. Um, so it was, a, it was quite a different philosophy. And then, of course, the whole business of, of actually manufacturing the composite meant that you had to go through this stage of drawing a layup, which could consist of many different plies laid up over the mould tool in many different directions and that all had to go down on a drawing. So, you know, you, you, you didn't just draw a panel and that was what was made and, and sent to the fabrication shop. You, you had to draw how the panel was made, um, which again was a, was a big learning process. And happily, you had two people helping you out. You had Arthur Webb, who was with BAE, who was a, a very important guide to you. Uh, and, uh, of course, Hercules Aerospace, because you could not find anywhere in Britain to build this. Everybody in Britain who you approached said, this cannot be done. And it was only Hercules' can-do plus, it turns out, some financial impetus um, promises made by Ron Dennis, it seems, that, uh, that this was done. Yeah, we, we, I mean, having got all the designs done, um, we then started looking for somewhere to make it, because um, we didn't have autoclaves and cleaners and so on, um, at, at McLaren, or at Project 4, in fact, as it was. Um, so we went to look at some companies in UK that we knew were doing composites. Um, I remember one of them was a company making helicopter composite helicopter blades. Um, but basically, it was the same response from all of them. You're learning, you're, you're running before you can walk. Yeah. Um, this is way too complicated. Um, you know, you really need to go away and sort of start <laughs> from a different point. 
Um, and then um, through somebody I'd known at um, in the, my days in America in Indianapolis, um, who had worked, had been a student at Hercules, I got chatting to to Steve, Steve Nichols, and he said, "Oh, they've got an R&D department. You know, maybe they might they might be interested." So um, we got on the phone to the head of this R&D. And within a couple of days, we were on a plane with our wind tunnel model that we saw in the previous picture, uh, kind of not exactly tucked under our arm, but um, in a big box. And we flew out to Hercules, um, myself and Ron, and the approach was completely different. It was like, wow, this is interesting. This is, you know, this is quite a complex structure, but, you know, we will learn from it as well. You know, we'd like to have a go. Uh, and indeed, it was, it was from this monocoque that the uh, uh, Civil Aviation Authority also learned, because after the Watson crash, <laughs> they called you, is that right? Yeah, after the Mons crash with John Watson, uh, they called, contacted me and said, can we come and look at the monocoque, because we're actually in the process of formulating rules, air, rules for the aircraft industry regarding composite structures. And I believe Arthur Webb actually ended up going to do a talk um, at... Um, one of the composite symposiums at the time, I can't remember when or where it was, but Arthur actually went and did a talk on that accident and the results of the accident. So, you know, it was that far ahead of the game that the, even the aircraft people were interested in it. Okay, so uh, you're now, now um, revolutions are flowing pretty quickly from your pen. You come up with the um, Coke bottle shape uh, with help from Alan Jenkins, uh, but uh, essentially you came up with this this idea that is still in Formula One as uh, the, the shape, which later became the double Coke bottle shape. Again, your innovation. Uh, there were all sorts of progress that you made at McLaren on carbon mm. brakes. I think you were making progress on. You were um, uh, also, of course, the fact that there was the uh, Porsche tag engine that you had directed to be specifically tailored for a ground effect car, yeah. just as they changed the ground effect rules. As Ferrari changed <laughs> the ground effect rules, you mean? No, yeah. Ferrari did, yes. Well, they always do, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, coming to this, why? any idea why you're looking so incredibly happy and Ron is really not? Probably because Ron's looking like that, I'm looking like that, so. <laughs> <laughs> that probably explains it. I'm probably giving him a, a, a problem to mull over. I don't know, I mean. I do smile and laugh sometimes. You do look quite mischievous yeah. there, actually, as we said. The relationship between the two of you, I mean, I just, just to explain for those people who are interested in the book, uh, it, this is a lot about uh, John's character and the characters involved and what the driving forces were behind them, particularly, of course, behind <clears throat> John Barnard. But it also talks about the, the reality, not just of the process of innovation, uh, and the creative process, how you come up with an idea and implement it, but what the humanity is of it. And part of the cauldron in which they were, were working was the increasing problems you had between the two of you. And bit by bit, especially towards the end, you were beginning to clash with Ron. Well, yeah, that's a bit of an oversimplification, really. I mean, uh, as I said before, my deal was Ron, with Ron was very simple. I come up with a technical direction and, 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 and all the technical side, and he goes and does the commercial side and comes up with the money, which he was exceptionally good at. Um, 
what happened was we then moved from, from Project 4 into McLaren International and I, for various reasons, decided that I wasn't going to continue in the setup we were in with five directors. You were in directors. a 50-50 partnership with No, them. it wasn't at that time. Um, yeah, but I was, uh, you know, there was, there was five directors and, and shareholders right. at the time. And pretty much there were just the two of us, Ron and myself, doing all the input, giving all the input. Sure. Um, and I didn't want to continue in that situation. So Ron then engineered a way that we could buy the others out and three of us, Ron, myself and Graham Brown, yeah. own the shares of, of the new company. Um, that meant that Ron and I had an equal shareholding. And when you are a partner with somebody and a shareholder and you have an equal shareholding, there is a, a kind of a balance, a kind of a power balance, if you like, unwritten, unspoken. As time went by, for various reasons, I wanted to sell my shareholding, I think at the end of 84, having had the big success. And Ron said, fine, leave it to me. Um, I'll do a deal for you, basically. And that's, he got in, Mansur involved from TAG. And Mansur bought my shares and Crichton Brown's shares. And so ended up, Mansur only 60%, Ron only 40% of the company. I was no longer a shareholder. I was still in the same position, still doing the same thing. It's strange because we both, Ron and I, we sat and talked about it and said, nothing's going to change. Nothing will change. We're doing the same thing. You know, we're still but it did moving change. forward. But there is an imperceptible change in that power balance that is impossible to explain, but it's there. And then, you know, I wasn't, and we, we continued to, on our success, so the team was becoming more valuable, which I wasn't going to benefit from. No. Um, so I said to Ron, um, you know, I'm, I need a new deal. I think this was at the end of 85. We sat down. We went back to Ron's house. We sat down. He said, like, Let, where are we going now? I said, well, you know, I'm no longer a shareholder. I need a different deal. Okay, let me think about it. So that was how we left it. We, went through, we then went through 86, and as 86 went by, there was no more, I didn't have that conversation with Ron. Um, and in short, you were somewhere in the middle of 86, I started getting phone calls. Exactly. And the man behind the phone calls was uh, this man here. Uh, and it was all a rather mysterious approach, but we're, again, we're, uh, we're a little bit short of time, so we can't go into it. But you eventually, you landed up going, being flown out uh, to see him. Uh, and it was quite an extraordinary experience. Uh, uh, because, uh, I mean, what was it like talking to Enzo? Um, well, it's quite scary, really. I mean, you're talking to the god of motor racing. God, um, yes. uh, you know, and you've been flown out in this super great big executive jet, picked up at the airport without going through passport. You don't need to bother with that. You're going to see Enzo. <laughs> um, and... Um, you know, you whisk back to his office, Marco, he doesn't speak English, I didn't speak Italian. So we've got Marco Piccinini, his right-hand man, sitting there doing the uh, interpreting between us. And, um, and then we went off to lunch in, in, the, in his private room in the Cavallino. 
um, where there were all sorts of carriers. There was Piero Lardi's there, and there was, um, I, think I remember this, I can't remember the, exactly who, people like Scaglietti and, you know, these big yeah. names from, from the car industry uh, who were just big buddies of Enzo. And we were sat down at this big long table and basically P Piccinini was the only one I was really talking to because the old man was sitting there watching the box that was on in the corner. I don't know what was on the box. And they were all chattering among themselves. We went back to his office and they just slipped a piece of paper across the table and said, would you sign this for us? It would make the old man very happy. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't a commitment. It was just something that said, you know, I was going to take their offer very seriously. But when they an do that, you, you know, refuse, it was really. kind of, yeah, it wasn't really an offer you couldn't refuse, but you just sort of felt, mm, you know. Because <laughs> by that time, of course, they'd already, they had already suggested to me that I set something up in UK. And that was the, the seminal moment that, uh, mm, that where, where, where you had been approached secretly uh, and you had refused to go. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't really got time to go into it, and it is a very well-known story. But in the end, they said, what about if we bring uh, Ferrari, Formula well, One? Well, what about if you could send your, a design office up in UK? Yeah. And I said, oh, well, that's a bit different. Yes. Because um, they, kept, they kept talking about salaries and numbers. And, yeah. You know, just kept adding bits on. And I kept saying, I'm not going to work in Italy. I'm, you know, it's the end of it. And um, yeah, it, it, um, it, it, so it so it developed, you know. But then when they said that, I thought, oh, well, that's different. Mm. And of course, on top of that, I didn't. We didn't just have a design office. So then ended up building a factory setup with our own cleaner and our own autoclave, our own machine shop, our own fabrication shop. So we made all the critical bits in UK: the chassis, the suspension, and so on. Okay. Um, uh we, again, we are very short of time, I've been told, so we're going to crack yeah. on. So this is the 639, I think. That's the 639. That's the uh, 88 the... car that never actually raced, but became the sort of test bed for the um, paddle shift gearbox. That's right. And that and uh, and this got a, quite a lot of cr criticism in, in the Italian press at the time because it was delayed in coming through. Uh, but this was the glorious moment... Uh, tell us a little bit about this, and I'm just going to point up here to you, I believe, clutching your head yeah. in disbelief because of this. Here, this is Rio. <laughs> there, that was Brazil, 79. That was the first race of that season. And by that time, I'd, I'd developed the 639 into the 640. 89. Sorry, sorry, Brazil, sorry, 80. Sorry, 89. Sorry, Brazil, 89. And I, by that time, I'd developed the 639 into the 640. Um, but all the testing, pre-season testing we'd done, um, which wasn't that much, but, but, um, but it, it basically there was a pro each time that we had broken down with something or other, mostly um, what turned out to be um, a lack of power, lack, lack of electrical power, the first thing that stopped working being the gearbox. But, but the press just said, Gearbox broken, yes. gearbox stopped. So we were already, I was already under a lot of pressure. Um, and, and Mansell was not expecting to even start, or even get anywhere in this race because the pre, uh, 
uh, race performance had been so bad, he'd already booked a flight home early. Yeah, early. Uh, I mean, the car was quick, I would quick, say. The car was it, quick, and he liked, the, the, he liked yeah. the paddle shift. But he was not expecting to win. But, but that was the problem. The, the, the reliability had been bad, and so Nigel yeah. thought, well, you know, probably get halfway. And, then, and, and Cesare Fiorio, the team manager, the guy in the front there, um, he actually said to me before the race, he said, do you think we should just put half a tank in and make a show of it, sort of, you know, <laughs> dis disappear into the distance, you know, and then run out of fuel, oh dear, it's broken down again, you know. And I said... Well, you uh, disagree with that? I disagreed. I said, well, you never know your luck, Fiorio, you know. Yeah. You might, we might finish, you never know. And then came the incredible moment when Mansell is out in front and he's on the radio and he's saying, um, my steering wheel is coming off. Yeah. Um, in my hands. This he was, new he paddle was, shifting steering. He was leading and, and obviously enjoying it because he kept coming on the radio and I think he was singing little bits of nursery rhyme, if I remember <laughs> rightly, which is a bit disconcerting. Day, but anyway, um, yeah, something like that. <laughs> anyway, then he came on very excited and he said, my steering wheel's fall, he said, fallen off. <laughs> and... Um, I said, ah, I said, can you get back into the pits? Yes, he said, I can push it against, and I can steer like that. So he got back in the pits, and I said to the Magneti Morelli boys, electrical boys, I said, we've got a spare steering wheel. And they said, well, we've got one spare one. They said, but, you know, we don't know whether the plug in the column is all going to connect up, and it's all the connections are going to be right, you know, bit, bit iffy sort of. I said, give us the steering wheel. So Joanne Villadel Pratt, chief mechanic, stood on one side of the car. I reached in and, and pulled off the quick release, which the steering wheel was still loosely attached to with one loose bolt, right. which is what he was using to steer it with. Um, the other two bolts having fallen out, um, which I would hasten to add, as a it was a mechanics problem. <laughs> um, um, and um, I pulled the wheel out. Joanne reached in smack the wheel on, uh, this spare wheel, Nigel selected first gear and off he went and off won the race. Went. That's um, right, and won. Yeah. And won the race but against It was a complete surprise odds. to everyone, as you can tell by my expression. <laughs> and the bells rang in Maranello, happily. Uh, and yeah, I think they smoked those concrete yeah. walls on the outside, but then it's came the moment of it. horror yeah. when we all froze as Gerhard Berger ploughed yeah. straight on into the barriers at 180 miles per hour, and worse was to come as the car exploded into flames and nobody believed he could have survived. But miraculously he did, and thanks to a strong Ferrari chassis and energetic fire marshals, it took 16 seconds from the Ferrari coming to a halt to the first extinguisher going off and 10 seconds more for the fire to be put out. That was a time, uh, the, the, a little bit of history on that, because the reason he went off was because the front wing um, support tube broke. And the reason it broke is because only, I think, a race before, um, the FIA had decided to change the rules on the front wing end plates. We were running, a, up to that time, we were running a flexible skirt on the front wing end plate, um, which obviously, it, as the car ran low, then the skirt could, could flex and move. 
They then decided that wasn't correct, it was a moving aerodynamic device and they made everybody put a rigid front end plate on. And what happened was Gerhard had been running the chicanes, running the curbs at the chicanes at Imola and um, it had, it had, because it was uploading the wing, it was loading it in a way that we hadn't really calculated for. So that this, this wing, main wing spar had actually cracked because of this uh, incorrect loading. And the front wing broke and literally went under the front of the car and it just, he had no steering, so he just went on. And that was the time when I watched in the pits and I thought, if he's, you know, if he's gone, I'm out. That's it. Done. Can't you do were, it. You were serious I was, about him I would have reason. gone. I would have left. Yeah. But the miracle was, was that he was not hurt. He was uh, he not was, hurt. He, 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 uh, he, was, he was unconscious. He burnt his hands a bit. Because, because of, he wasn't wearing his, his gloves. Wasn't because wearing he had taken his gloves, gloves yeah. off to get a, have a better feel. And he told me, as he says in the book, that your chassis, the chassis is what saved his life. Hitting a wall at 180 miles an hour yeah. and living. It, yeah. it, it's just, what I'm stressing is the contribution. Even though it, it wasn't your focus and plan, it was definitely part of what you did, uh, making a contribution toward, um, a massive contribution towards safety uh, because you upgraded everything to aerospec standards, you uh, introduced carbon fibre, you introduced the paddle shift, which means you didn't have to take your hand off the steering wheel, which was safer, it was better for the engines. Now, we're in Benetton, but we're going, I'm afraid to say, because we have been told that we're out of time, uh, we can't really go into Benetton except to say it's in the book uh, and we've been very careful to avoid the libel laws. <laughs> in the book, by the book. <laughs> uh, here we go on to another major innovation and now you're still in a world, you're back at Ferrari yeah. after you with your brief period at uh, Benetton and you've, of course you developed the paddle shift and now you take it one stage further. Yeah, I mean the paddle shift came about because of packaging. I couldn't stand the mess that a gear shift run made through the chassis, round the engine, and you know it was just a nightmare. Plus the fact that um, I liked the idea of keeping your hands on the wheel. I didn't like this width that we had to put in the chassis to get gear shifts and so on in. And pretty much the same thing happened with the steering wheel. We'd we'd had you know you, we, all the time we were gaining controls, electronic controls. We had diff controls. We had engine mappings. I mean, you can see, even this is 1996, this wheel was run, um, when Schumacher came. Um, even then, you can see all the controls are beginning to come on the steering wheel. Um, but the point was, up to that time, we'd all been putting little dashboards on in front of the steering wheel. And I just got to the point where I thought, this is crazy, because even if we put a dashboard, and even if we put all this stuff on the dashboard, they're not going to see it anyway. So I just thought, well, why don't we put it on the wheel? I mean, we were already running electronics down the column anyway because of the paddle shift. Um, so I thought, well, you know, we'll just run it all up and put it all on the wheel. So, so and this was the beginning of, of, of course, the, 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 the steering wheel dashboard that uh, is on every Formula yeah, One car. I think, I think ever, that was ever, the ever first since. time, yeah. Uh, and now we, we just flip back in a sense in time, but also forward, because this is the Museum of Modern Art. And this is the 641, the car, the last Ferrari that you designed it during your first time there. Uh, and uh, this is on the wall, credited to you, uh, with Steve Nichols' name under it, because he made some contributions to it. 
And the remarkable thing about this is that it's in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and it's the only car that is, is up on the wall, and to my knowledge is still up on the wall, and it's been there for something like 30 years, and they've mm. never done that. They've never honoured a car like that. And I also bring up this one, which is the Ferrari 635, what's No, six, um, 645. Sorry, 645, is it? Yes, yeah, and, Type 645, 94 car. And yeah. this uh, w was described by a journalist as a pebble washed by the sea, and is often cited as, as your most beautiful car. Would you agree it was one of your most beautiful Well, it was initially. I mean, that, that, that whole intake thing, um, I, my theory with that one was I was going to use, um, I was trying to make the, the, the radiators and everything a low drag system, which it was, and we did lots of testing with it up at uh, Myra. Um, and, and the idea being to have a larger, larger radiator cores, thus increasing the uh, cross-section of the side pods and, and giving your pro upping your profile drag you're, a bit. You're but taking this idea from Spitfire. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, they, they, there was theory like that on the Spitfire oil coolers, I think. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I wanted that effect. But the other thing about it was I was trying to package everything at the back really small around the gearbox. And so you can, you, the, the radiator exits are just there behind the, the agit, but, but the inlet and the exit were uh, quite a lot smaller than I'd been using uh, a ratio to the matrix area. And this was not the success, it was unfortunately because the engine department well, made it, a mistake. It, it turned out, what <clears throat> happened was we kept getting, um, being told by the engine people that we were in cooling problems. We were in cooling problems. I know how they and feel. And we kept chopping the ducts around. And in fact, I know Mike Coughlin's here tonight because he will remember with composite bits in his pocket flying out to Canada to graft on some new inlets for the, for the ducts. It turned out, it, 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 I was told much, much later, that in fact the problem was that the engine people hadn't... Um, hadn't corrected the water flow to, to balance the water flow between the, the asymmetric radiators. The water on one side was twice the size of the water on the other side, but most of the water ended up going through the small radiator and not the big one, so we didn't have the cooling we should have had. But that was much later and, and the car got, the, the side pods got changed because of that, because gonna... of the cooling problem. I'm going to rush to the end now. Um, uh, this is Schumacher, sadly, uh, great driver. You didn't really get on with him. It was uh, uh, part of a clash that made you decide to take uh, Ferrari's offer to build what, what was uh, B3, where you started to work for a number of people like Prost, and you produced this beautiful car, the uh, A19 uh, yeah. for Arrows, uh, which was underpowered, unfortunately, um, uh, and so it wasn't the success it might have been. Uh, we're now right at the end of the book, and indeed, um, 30 years on since you last met him, and we went to meet Ron Dennis at the McLaren Technology Center. What I remember about this particularly is how so keen Ron was to show you uh, what he had done and how fantastic it was, and it was like watching you two 30 years before, uh, with you basically not really being impressed. It wasn't that you weren't impressed, but you were always questioning him. And one of the big questions you had 
was about how McLaren was running and why it was failing in Formula One. I kept asking him, but who's running it? Who's running this? Who's running that? And, and I think I said to him at the time, Ron, it's got to be you. You know, you can't delegate this stuff. Um, because, you know, Ron's, Ron's aim right from day one was, was to build a large conglomerate of companies, you know, and he wanted to sit on top, which is what he did. But unfortunately, I think Formula One got sacrificed for that. Because when I was there then, I wanted him, because it was still running, he was still there and McLaren was still going, but it wasn't really going successfully. And I just wanted him to engage me in a conversation about, you know, why he should be sitting on top of Formula One, let other people do the other stuff. Exactly. And just concentrate on Formula One and sort it out. And he would telling me about, you know, the group that did this and the group that did that and the group that did that. I said, but who's pulling it all together? Who's pulling all that together? Oh, I've got some really good guys in these groups, but who's pulling it all together? And, yeah. you know, that that's kind of what I was trying to get out of him, but I never did. But um, it was an impressive facility, I have to say. Of course it is. Of course it was. And uh, a loss to Formula One that Ron Dennis isn't there, and a loss that he didn't really take the advice to sit back on top of Formula One and make it happen. Because as the old saying goes, you um, win on Sunday, you sell on Monday. Okay, this brings us to the end. It's a, a picture of a carbon fibre table, which is uh, six metres long, I believe. It's got a Racing that's, a, that's, a, that's a four metre. The that's, four metre that's one. That's only a four metre one. I'm sorry. Yes. We do make a six as uh, well. And you created this with Terence Woodgate and yeah. it won all sorts of awards and cost a small fortune. Have you got, you've got one yourself? I've got, a, I've got a desk six foot long. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so you've moved away from motorsport entirely. You're, you've moved back to, which is another part of the book, your family life, which is where you are now. You're enjoying being a grandfather. Yes, yeah, enjoying, very hard work. But do um, you regret having left all this? I would not be in a rush to get back into it the way it has, the way it's become today. It is so big. Uh, I, you know, it would worry me how, how you could run something like that and still be involved close enough to the bits and pieces, if you like. Because there's so many people. Because it is so many. There are so many departments and specialists and groups of, you know, specialists. Um, I, I don't know. I would like to think that there are opportunities for some innovation, but it gets harder and harder the way the rules are. I mean, it's tied to your hands in every direction. Because throughout your career, you've been all about innovation. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want you to give a round of applause for John Barnard. I would, thank I, would just like, I would just like to say something actually, that I have seen um, and know that there are an awful lot of people here tonight who know me and have worked for me, with me, whatever you want to call it, um, over the years. And um, I'm quite scared by some of the questions that might come. <laughs> John, you'll have to stop me asking them, then. That's the thing to do. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, John Barnard, first of all.
ladies and gentlemen, normal, usual rules when I give you the microphone, ask the question. So who's going to be first tonight? I know it's warm, but uh, there must be one question over there. Okay. Thank you, Gareth. Yeah, it should be. Yep. Yeah, it should be. No, no sound. Use me. You'll have to get close to me, OK? <laughs> um, John, uh, obviously we're used to seeing the um, rivalry between the drivers at the front end. Um, in your day, obviously, there were, the designers were very much identifiable. Um, what kind of rivalry was there between you, like people like Gordon Murray, of course, and um, you know, who out of those do you admire the most? Um, there was a great rivalry between the designers because in those days pretty much all the teams had a chief designer whatever you want to call them technical director chief designer and um, and so there was a rivalry between those those people and, and I mean you know you well I was always trying to come up with a new thing because I wanted to get a jump on them um, but having said that I mean it was I would say, well, I certainly considered it bad form to wander down the pit road looking at other people's designs. I thought that was a bit, bit rude, really. Um, so I kind of kept, kept to myself in, in that respect. But um, I think there may be another question at the back here. Sorry, that... actually, I have a question. All right. Um, I'm going to reverse procedure. Dave Ryan's here tonight. I've seen him. I haven't said hello. Dave, can you tell me, in all honesty, what happened with the blow-up on the chassis? Can I just get to... Where is he? Dave, put your hand up. Yeah, thanks for that, John. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we'd had a bit of a... We'd had a bit of a night beforehand, and um, you'd left in a huff. You and Ron had had a bit of a... a bit of an argument about oh, something. Oh, no, surely not. <laughs> and uh, Ron was very keen to do the pit stop practice before you came back, the refueling practice, which was a bit of a, well, we weren't expecting it, put it that way. And all we had to do was finish the cars off and get them in the truck. But um, anyway, we did it. And you're right, I didn't get the vent on. But so. when, we, when we had the 50-year meeting at Goodwood recently, you came up to me and said, Actually, it wasn't Ron that made it was although Ron made us turn the pressure up the problem was I was too late putting the breather hose on yeah <laughs> is that true that's, uh, I'm afraid that's right John, yeah. but, but it was good admit it was good seeing Ron and you having a huge argument afterwards so that was, that was worth it uh, just right, to explain um, to the we've got another question at the back here just while I've got dr. John with me um, Sorry, you'll have in... to stand close, John. Okay. Oh, I know you don't want to, but uh, there we go. John, I'm here on behalf of uh, one of my colleagues who's. Sorry, I can't really hear you very well. I'm here on behalf of one of my colleagues who, fortunately, <laughs> owns a Benetton B190, finding it very difficult to get information on it. Very simple questions. Do you know how many chassis were built of the B190? Composite chassis in at McLaren, you mean? No, he's, he's talking about the, the, Benetton. the Benetton B190. You're talking yeah, the about the Benetton B190. Oh, the B1. Oh, in, uh, I can't tell you exactly. No, um, I, I mean, average number of chassis we would build in those days would have been, I suppose, anything from six to eight, something like that, in a season. Um, but I, on the, I honestly don't know the numbers. Um, the 190 was. 
I only I only got involved in that car. It was a car that Rory Byrne had um, had started penciling before I got involved, um, and I just did a few changes, front wings, some suspension points, and things like this. So I I don't claim that car. Um, I wouldn't say that was my car. Um, do you happen to know what happened to them? Uh, are they still around, or did they get scrapped? No. I mean, when I left Benetton, I wasn't really worried about the number of chassis left. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, John. Right, I think Amanda, you wanted to ask a question. You sure? No, okay, probably being answered. Yes, sir. Just hang on a moment, I'll get you. Now, third time lucky with this microphone, so there you go, sir. Hi, John, it's Mike Dudson. All right. Uh, um, after the turbos came in towards the end of the 70s, um, there was quite a lot of skullduggery going on among the teams that didn't have the power of the turbo engines. Um, did you ever get involved in anything which was perhaps uh, slightly outside the rules in order to compensate for the lack of power? Um, yes, I mean, bending the rules uh, and getting away with it is actually part of the design process. Um, I re the only time I can remember doing anything that um, was, um, and I wasn't the only one, um, was <laughs> when we were when we started running um, water-cooled brakes, which was it was all down to a weight. Um, uh, minimum weight that was in the regulations where the, the, and the turbo cars again, politicking by turbo car teams had raised the weight limit and um, and there was something else in the rules that said at the end of a race you, are, you will be allowed to top up all your liquids before weighing so I, it wasn't me but some other bright spark came up with the idea that if we ran water cooled brakes we could, we could carry about 30 to 40 kilos of water um, in a tank and then with the aid of a windscreen washer motor or something like that, um, we could dump this water on the track within about four or five laps um, and run comfortably 30 to 40 kilos underweight. Um, and that, we did that, um, we did that at McLaren, I think that was probably 82, I can't remember now. Um, and you know, it, theoretically, it was it was legal if you believe that we were running water-cooled brakes. But <laughs> good question. Um, another one, ladies and gentlemen. If you're not about to succumb to the heat, one more question, maybe. Yes, sir. Right in the middle. If you can just hold on, just pass that to you. Otherwise, no one. That's all right. No one can hear unless you've got the mic. A uh, very simple one. You were about to explain the background to the um, uh, fueling situation before a question came in on the question that you asked at the back there. Um, yeah, you mean in 83 when we suddenly started um, going to do the refueling? I mean, again, it was, um, it was the turbo, turbo, I think it was Brabham actually that started it with their, with their turbo BMW engine. And um, uh, they introduced refueling, and there was nothing in the rules to stop it. But um, since we, or I had 
got pressured into making a an interim turbo car in 83 we were more or less forced to uh, do the refueling ourselves because we couldn't carry enough fuel for a turbo um, because we'd only got a fuel tank built for a Cosworth. In order to do that I designed a, a, a new filler breather system that went on the top of the existing tank and monocoque um, which was, was a, well it was a bit of a compromise because the monocoque wasn't designed to take what I needed which was really a much bigger um, fillers and breathers and, and the, the result was that, that we had to be the breather was a lot smaller than the filler um, and we had to be super careful on filling on breathing at just the right time. Had, the breather had to go on, then the filler had to go on, and the only way we could judge the fuel that we were putting on board was with a stopwatch at the time. And I remember I used to literally stand there, watch the mechanic put the filler on. As the filler went on and opened, I hit the stopwatch, and I'd give it, I don't know, eight seconds or something like that. And in eight seconds, we knew there were so many liters gone on board. Uh, hit him on the back and he pulled it off and that was the refueling system. Um, it was all extremely dangerous to be honest um, and really we weren't sorry to see it get outlawed but um, we had to do it because you know we had to keep racing and we had to race with the turbo. Thank you ladies and gentlemen. John? Well okay, as it's you Howard I'll allow it. Hold on, hold on. You just got in at the last minute there. <coughs> this has to be the last one, ladies and gentlemen. Howard, there you go. Good evening, John. My name's Howard Moore. Um, Howard. I just wondered if you could answer a couple of questions. One My name's Howard Moore. It's like I don't know him. <laughs> <laughs> um, firstly, were you ever involved in the design of medical instruments? Sorry, design of what? Were you ever involved in the design of medical instruments medical or surgery? Instruments. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, my brother-in-law in Belfast is a surgeon, and he, uh, I don't know, he sort of works down here, in this bit down here. Um, and he had this device for threading um, surgical thread down inside the bowels and actually tying off, I don't know what he does with it, I didn't, he showed me a video one time, I looked at half of it and thought, I don't really <laughs> want to see anymore. Um, and um, it was used for tying up and, and he'd had somebody in Belfast try and make this thing that he wanted and they made a real mess of it. So we got involved and um, one of the, I don't know whether he's, I don't think he's here tonight, but um, we schemed one up at, um, Three. No, it's before that. I think it might have been, I can't remember actually, it might have been Benetton or somewhere. But um, anyway, you schemed something up. Um, my friend uh, in, who got the machine shop in California, uh, Kenny Hill, made us some. And um, it, had a, it was a device, it had a, a spool in the handle which fed thread out. And the shape of this thing, he could put it down in the gut and then with some finger work, tie off various bits and pieces that he had to tie off. Um, I don't think it, it was, 
it was almost got into mainstream production, but then the companies that made the reels of um, surgical thread changed something, or I think staples may have come along at that time, and now now what you get is a you know, you get stapled up now, I think, rather than tied up. So. Howard, you've got another question. The question was, John, I think most of us uh, would like to know, do you still watch Grand Prix racing on television? Well, you know, <laughs> since this book came out, and I would hasten to add, it wasn't my idea. He was, it was his idea to write it, and it is a biography, so it's got, it's got both sides of the argument in there. Um, since then, I've had done so many interviews that, you know, I, I've, I've been forced to watch some races, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have watched a few recently, but um, I thought Hamilton did a bloody good job in the last one, actually. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, John Barnard. Is uh, usual on these occasions with motorsport legends. We'd like to present you, John, with a piece of the 1908 track here. Um, it has been varnished to stop it uh, being dusty, but thank you very much for being here. Thank you. And next, that's for you for hosting the evening. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much thank you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to just. Um, Go straight into the auction now that Tim's going to run. It's a photograph that. Um